Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Liam Drew tells us the story of what makes us mammals in his debut book, I Mammal. Liam Drew is a writer, former neurobiologist and a mammal. He has a PhD in sensory biology from University College London and spent 12 years researching schizophrenia, pain and the birth of new neurons in the adult mammalian brain at Columbia University and at UCL. His writing has appeared in Nature, New Scientist, Slate and The Guardian. And today we're going to be talking about Liam's first book, which is I, Mammal, the story of what makes us mammals. Liam, welcome to Little Atoms. Hello, nice to be here. Tell me how the book came about. Right, the book has two sort of starting points. Um, There's a pre-story and then the book becoming a a, a true full-time project. And and the pre-story is that of a misdirected football. Um, I was playing five-a-side football uh, about, about, what was it, eight years ago now, and came out, I'm a goalkeeper, came out, brave goalkeeping they call it, spread myself before the goal and the attacker shot and it very, very painfully struck me in an anatomical entity which you only find in mammals. And this is an occupational hazard of goalkeepers. It had happened many times before. But um, the next day, my my girlfriend sort of commented on what a ridiculous arrangement it is to have one's essential reproductive organs outside your body. And I sort of said something along the usual lines. Oh, it keeps them cool. You know, that's necessary to make sperm. But then I sort of started to wonder why this particular process needed to be cooler than my warm-blooded core temperature. And I just sort of went down this internet wormhole into the world of evolutionary studies of uh, testicle externalisation. And this became this sort of labour of love, 5,000-word essay, which I sort of shopped around in the end. And then Laura Helmuth at Slate finally said, yes, you know, I think our readers would enjoy this essay. And so that came out. And... And the week after it came out, I was looking at my LinkedIn account, and no one ever looks at my LinkedIn page, but this day, a commissioning editor from Bloomsbury had looked at it, and I thought I said to myself, you know, don't be ridiculous. But two days later, an email came from Bloomsbury asking if I'd ever considered writing a book. And this is the sort of second part of the story, is that this email landed in my inbox when I had a one-year-old daughter and I'd just spent the last year being kind of blown away by parenthood and there'd been so many sort of profound 
transformations in my life. And I think they'd all just sort of thrown this very primordial biology at me, you know, instead of just being, uh, you know, I think I spent my 20s and early 30s just considering myself a free-floating cerebrum, you know. I was human, like it was all about brains. And suddenly my world was about sort of milk and babies and wombs and, and just this psychological transformation of becoming a father. And the testicle article had sort of given me this grounding in mammalian biology. And suddenly when Bloomsbury asked me about a book, I suddenly thought, all these things, all these things are mammalian traits. Um, would it be interesting to sort of catalogue all these traits that make a mammal a mammal, that make me a mammal, and put them together in a book? And so that's what I pitched to Bloomsbury and, and they like the idea. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to talk about where mammals come from, to put it in very short terms. Right. But let's talk about, first of all, where the idea of mammals, or the term, the definition of mammals comes from, obviously, like the classification of Linnaeus and stuff. But there was, for a while, uh, a number of different names for what we now call mammals and different sort of like classifications and specifically around shared traits that mammals have. So tell me about the sort of story of getting to a definition of mammals, first of all. Right. You can sort of look back to the Greeks and Aristotle sort of coming up with classification systems and, and he sort of had vertebrates and invertebrates. But then for many centuries, quadrupeds was an entity. So having four legs and living on land was, was this big category. And importantly, whales and dolphins were considered fish, even though people had noticed that they sort of breathed there and, and gave live birth. And so uh, the first sort of hint of it was a guy called John Ray, who was around in the 17th century. And he sort of said, actually, maybe um, fish and dolphins should be grouped with, with warm-blooded, furry land animals. Uh, and he suggested the name vivipara for live birth. And although John Ray was very influential, this didn't quite catch on. And then along came Carl Linnaeus in, in the mid-18th century, who decided he was going to classify everything in, in the world. And for the first few iterations of his Systema Natura, this grand, grand project, which began as 11 pages and then grew to 2,400 pages, I think, by the last edition. And then this pivotal edition, he basically moved dolphins and whales from the fish category and put them with the rest of mammals, the quadrupeds. And so he needed to come up with a new name for this category. And so he had sort of various options. And he never really explained himself. Just suddenly he says in his book, these will be called mammalia um, after the mammary gland that no other type of animal has. I think it was a good choice, but he never explained himself, so we don't know why he picked this particular trait, but the classification stood. It took some years for the name to catch on. So what are some of the other traits that all or most... Because obviously there's always oddities and there's always weird things, and we'll talk about some of those as we go along. But like one of the, the odd ones that had never occurred to me before was um, jawbones. Right, so jawbones, um, we mammals, have a jaw joint formed by a single lower jawbone, the dentary, which holds all our teeth, and that meets a particular skull bone, the squamosal. And this is quite sort of esoteric stuff. And I think it, was a, it became very important for classifying mammals because bones fossilise. <laughs> and so when you're looking at the fossil record, going back hundreds of millions of years, it was sort of a convenient thing to say, as soon as this jaw joint formed, that's what we can call a real mammal. But there's a whole biology to go with that. So when... Uh, if you look at sort of uh, reptiles, they have three bones in their lower jaw and they have a different jaw joint. And it seemed that it was re it was a really important process in the evolution of mammals that the jaw became much, much stronger. And so the the two rear bones of the lower jaw kept getting pushed back and back. 
until eventually this amazing transformation happened that they got so small that they got pushed back until they became part of the middle ear. So one of the, the distinctive one of the other distinctive characteristics of mammals that goes with this jaw joint is that we have a middle ear with three oscillating, vibrating bones in the middle of it, whereas reptiles have just the one. So there's this really fascinating transformation in the jaw and the ear evolving together. And I think one of my favourite fossils to learn about was this one that actually had two jaw joints. So it was an animal that actually had the ancestral reptilian type of joint alongside the mammalian jaw joint. And so that was the sort of the crossover point. So somewhere back there in the past, in the olden days, there was, you know, a common ancestor that, you know, what would become mammals had with what would become reptiles and what have you. And mammals go off to become mammals. But there's, again, it's never that. It's never that simple. And there's lots of other little sort of branches that come off there that don't go anywhere. Tell us about some of these. And I'm not going to be able to read my own writing here, so you'll have to uh, come up with the uh, the correct pronunciation. But the... Uh, Pelicosaurs and the cynodonuts and things like that. Cynodonuts, I quite like that. <laughs> Cynodonts. Cynodonts, yes. It's all about the teeth, the donts. So, yeah, I think basically the, the essential starting point of, this, of the story which I wanted to tell in this book was 310 million years ago was when the last common ancestor of reptiles and mammals lived. And at that point, these two lineages diverged. And so you had these sort of pre-mammalian ancestors of ours, the only thing that distinguished them from the reptilian ancestors was that they had a different hole in their skull. And then through this sort of 100 million year period, so from 310 million years ago to 210 million years ago, you've got this succession of animals that start off looking very reptilian and end up looking like a quintessential mammal. And you can sort of grade these the stages of evolution across that 100 million year period. And... There's a guy, Tom Kemp at Oxford, who I owe a lot to for this sort of fossil analysis um, that the field owes a lot to. Uh, and he says you, might, you can sort of distinguish 10 grades, but pelicosaurs, then therapsids, and then cynodonts are these three main stages, and they look increasingly mammalian. So pelicosaurs were the first ones. The most famous of these is dimetrodon, which infuriatingly, once you start researching this stuff, is always sold as a rubber toy with the dinosaurs at the Natural History Museum. It's that familiar lizard-looking animal, quite a big animal with a big sail back on it. Um, but that was actually was a pre-mammalian ancestor. And then you can sort of trace through the fossil record these very distinctive changes. So the, the jawbone and the ear that we were just talking about is one that you see. And then the limbs, if you picture a reptile, they sort of have their legs splayed out to the sides and legs get gradually tucked underneath the body to create a more agile, manoeuvrable animal. And you see the rib cage changing and you see the nasal cavity changing and you see the teeth especially changing. Um, so there's all these clues. And so by the time you get to 210 million years ago, there's the distinctive jaw joint, but then there's all these other traits, a bigger brain case, a bigger cranium indicating a bigger brain and like I say, the limbs, the rib cage, the nasal cavity, all these bony hallmarks, teethy hallmarks of mammals that are in place by then. I'm Irving Finkel, and you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Mammals, when you compare them to other orders of life, like, you know, like insects and things, are rather insignificant in terms of numbers, aren't they? They are, yeah. No, I sort of started out with this vision of 
mammals as being wonderfully diverse. And I think that still stands. They still are. You know, an aardvark and a blue whale, or a pangolin and a human being, a rat and an elephant. You know, they, they are incredibly diverse. But yeah, there's about 5,500 mammals, and there's about 10,000 reptiles, about 10,000 birds, 26,000 bony fish, I think. Uh, and then you get to insects, and there's about a million of them. So... Yeah, in terms of diversity, uh, we don't compete with insects, we don't compete with a lot of things, but I don't know, I'd, I'd like to make the case that they're still a very diverse group. An elephant versus a mouse is more different than an eagle versus a sparrow, say, but uh, yes, we're a, we're a small group, really. Well, we might come back to that elephant versus a mouse a bit later <laughs> on, because it, it crops up later in the book. So, yeah, there's not that many mammals, but of what mammals there are, we've got marsupials, we've got monotremes, which we'll come back to in a minute, and then we've basically got everything else. Yeah. Monotremes. Let's talk about the duckbill platypus, because it features, again, throughout this book, it's, it's, it's a good comparison to talk about the evolution of, of all of the rest of the mammals and things. Um, but it's just a great animal. Let's just talk about the platypus <laughs> for a bit. Uh, yeah, I love the platypus. Uh, it, it's a shame it's not a better traveller. I, I often pop into the British Museum just to look at the stuffed one that's in there. <laughs> like, let's just stop you there. What Elaborate on that. What does that actually mean? Because literally we were unable to get a live duckbill platypus from its natural habitat over to the UK. And obviously you're talking about like in the days when that would have been on a sailing ship, but, you know, early you know Victorian naturalists and stuff going out and, you know, shooting them in their hundreds or whatever. But is that still the case now? I mean, I know there's not one in London Zoo, for instance. Uh, you know, I think that they're very difficult to keep in captivity. And so some Australian zoos have got them. And there have been tomes and tomes written about trying to keep them because they are this fascinating creature that people love to see. The closest one has ever come to Britain was a very bizarre story that Winston Churchill actually requested one. I think it was 1943. It was certainly in the late stages of the war as a sort of morale-boosting project and sort of an attempt, some have argued, to sort of cement Anglo-Australian relationships. And so Australia actually got a platypus and sent it on an Australian warship and it nearly made it. It was due to come into Liverpool, I think, and and days before it got there, there was a submarine attack on this boat, and the poor platypus died. Uh, well, that platypus was murdered, though. That one could have made it. He may have made it, yeah. Now, apparently, as well, they miscalculated the food, I think, so he was sort of on these ration diet, and he wasn't in the best of shape. There may have been one that made it to Ger- a German zoo, but there is a great story. Twice the Bronx Zoo in New York got platypuses, and at one point it managed to get a male and a female, and there was this... <laughs> There was this sort of have-they-haven't-they drama that played out. It was being reported on, I think the front cover of Time had the platypus on it, the Melbourne newspaper was reporting on it back home, and there was this great hope that these platypuses were going to breed at the Bronx Zoo, I think it was the 1930s. Uh, They never did. And uh, so, yeah, uh, they evolved in Australia and they seem to prefer (laughs) staying there. So the platypus is, you know, to all intents and purposes, a mammal, but there's lots that are different about it. Yeah, so, no, it is, it's this fascinating animal that I just ended up coming back to again and again in the book. Uh, so much so that it ended up having its, its own chapter, which begins with the first one arriving in Europe, dead, in, I think it was 1797. It had been sent back by this, the guy who'd set up the penal colony at um, Sydney. And he sent just back a skin, and it arrived. And, you know, famously, the first description of it thought it might be a hoax. It had come via the South China Sea, where people used to 
sew monkeys' heads onto fishes' bodies and say they were mermaids. And so people really doubted it. And it sort of had the, and I think it's just one of, it's sort of proof that evolution has a sense of irony, that this animal, which would have been weird enough as it was, a challenge to all taxonomy, had what appeared to be a duck's bill. And especially when it's dead and dried out, it looks even more like a duck's bill. So that was a real challenge. But then when the actual full specimens came back, again, dead specimens, but full internal organs, it, it just got more and more confusing. And famously, the first case, there was no, the, the guy who examined it found no evidence of mammary glands, which is obviously this defining feature of mammals, despite the fur and the other sort of mammalian type traits. And then when he looked at the reproductive tract of the female, it was just impossible to tell whether or not it was going to give birth to live young or lay eggs. And so this, these questions basically occupied the majority of the 19th century. It took 30 years to establish whether or not they made milk or not, and then another 86 years until the sort of people back home in England. It was a, it was a tale of very... They do come across as incredibly snobbish European academics, not really trusting the people in Australia to give them honest reports. Uh, so it wasn't until this Cambridge scholar went over to Australia in the 1880s and found he's, he basically shot dead a platypus in the process of giving birth so that one egg was in her reproductive tract, one egg was beside her, and finally it was accepted that they laid eggs. Well, that one didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, she didn't. And this guy was absolutely appalling. He sort of went over there and he, he was the guy that slaughtered something like 1,500 echidnas, the platypus's cousins and platypuses, trying to resolve this question. And he, he's really not a nice character once you dig into his biography. But yes, but the reason that we keep going back to them is that this little cohort, the platypus and, and the echidna, the, the spiny anteaters, as they're called, they do lay eggs. They have mammary glands. They have mammary glands with no nipples. And whatever sort of mammalian trait you look at, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are in some sort of intermediate form in these animals. So the sort of, you know, whether it's skeletal features or the degree of warm-bloodedness, they sort of, their temperature oscillates a bit more and it's a bit lower. So there's sort of a constant reference point for how mammals might have evolved. So the whole basis of this, now we think in terms of sort of branching phylogenetic trees ever since Darwin, we now think that this sort of this lineage of mammals that have given rise to these five surviving species branched off from other mammals probably 166 million years ago or so. And so it's not to say that our ancestors all had duck bills or spines, but these traits survive from those animals and they just give us a little insight into what mammals might have been looking like a few million years before the last common ancestor of the marsupials and well, let's look at one of those examples, because I was, I was going to talk about this later on, but we may as well do it now. So you mentioned that they have mammary glands, as do human beings, but they don't have nipples. And bizarrely, a platypus sweats milk. That's how it passes its milk onto its young. It, it sort of sweats, probably not the, 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 the right way to describe it, but it sort of secretes milk in, in some sort of way. And indeed, that gives us insight into into how milk production and delivery i don't mean the milkman i mean our own production <laughs> our own delivery evolved in other mammals right yeah no exactly yeah i don't think sweat's too bad a term to be honest so no other type of animal has mammary glands we have these i mean milk is a phenomenally rich complex you know infant diet it's amazing you know every mammal that's ever born it's it's first period of growth is, is fueled purely by milk and so it's it's an incredibly complex gland and it's quite a sophisticated behavior that a baby mammal a newborn mammal knows 
to go to its mother's teat, latch on and, and, and drink. And so much so that when, when Darwin first published Origin of Species, one of, the, one of the most stinging critiques he had was a guy called St. George Miver, great first name, St. George. Um, and he said, there's no way that this could have evolved incrementally. And, and Darwin himself said, if you look at a mammary gland, it looks like a hypertrophied sweat gland. And he got that absolutely right. And then, then subsequent researchers looked at the, the fine anatomy of, of a sweat gland and of the mammary gland, and they saw these similarities. So the monotremes don't have nipples, and they have these glands. And what you see, if you look at the mammary gland and you look at a particular type of sweat gland, uh, the sweat gland, the sebaceous gland, secretes this lubricant that goes along a hair. This is the bit that puts you off your milk, this sort of oily, sweaty secretion. And then as people looked at the very fine anatomy and especially the development of these glands, they saw these similarities of them. And if you look at a koala mammary gland and you actually look at the development of that, that gland still has a hair that protrudes out of the mammary gland. And so it really just shows the similarity between the sebaceous gland associated with a hair follicle and the mammary gland. And so sort of between the monotreme and the koala, you sort of get to see these sort of intermediate forms in how you convert a sweat gland into a mammary gland and the mammary gland is much more elaborate than the sweat gland but you've already got the sort of smooth muscle around the sweat gland which squeezes the oily sweat out which now has been sort of co-opted for the milk ejection reflex and so yes developmental studies of these glands have been really important for showing the conversion. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Liam Drew. We're talking about his first book, which is I Mammal, the story of what makes us mammals. I'm a human being and I'm aware loosely that, you know, the reason I'm a, a male is because, you know, I have a, a X and Y chromosome and women have two Xs. Obviously, this is in very general terms, um, but in most cases. And so it would be easy to presume, you know, we've seen the genome of many animal species, you know, sequenced now. We know all animals have DNA. That's the basis of life. We know they have chromosomes it would be easy to presume that that was like that for everything but it isn't i was completely guilty of thinking male xy female xx was kind of how everything became male and female and this is another example of the platypus being amazingly enlightening but i'll get to that in a second so when people started looking at chromosomes at the start of the 20th century they were incredibly difficult to visualize and so the people turned to insects and they were looking at fly chromosomes because they're much bigger and the x chromosome is actually so named because it was this mysterious little chromosome in flies that didn't quite behave like other chromosomes so x was for mystery chromosome it was nothing to do with the chromosome looking like an x and then as people got better and better at looking at the chromosomes there was a lady called Nettie Stevens who basically looked at fruit flies and they did things a little bit differently from the from the other flies where the X chromosome had been discovered. And she basically saw that male fruit flies are XY and females are XX. So that looks as if it's exactly the same as humans. But then Thomas Morgan took over these sorts of studies at Columbia University in New York And what he found in fruit flies is that if you're X with no Y, you are still male. And you actually needed two copies of the X to make you female. So there's this dose dependency. And so once people were able to see mammalian chromosomes in the 1920s, they found that possums and humans, these were the first two mammals in which X and Y chromosomes were seen, we saw that the male was XY, the female was XX. And so we kind of assumed that it would be exactly the same as as fruit flies. Then in the 1950s, when people got really good at seeing chromosomes, they could start to really, improvements in staining and microscopy, allow people to really look at these chromosomes. And then things got a little stranger. So you have these medical conditions. Like you say, you know, the vast majority of people, XX equals female. So in terms of biological sex, XY is male. And then they found people that were XXY. And these people, if a double dose of X made you female, you would anticipate they would appear female but actually they look male and then the converse if you're x zero if you don't have a y chromosome a human being or any mammal will look female and so suddenly it was the y chromosome seemed to contain this gene that would make a fetus become male and it does this by basically telling the developing baby to make testicles and then these testicles swap the growing fetus with testosterone and other male hormones and that masculinizes development and so that that was a shock in the 1950s and then the sort of search was on for working out how this y chromosome induced testicle construction and the sort of hunt for a gene started and again people with curious chromosomal arrangements came to the fore so the next one was that you could actually have people that were xx and looked male, 
or you could have people that were XY and appeared female. And XY that look female, there's a gene missing from their Y chromosome. And XX that look male have a gene that's jumped from their Y chromosome to one of their Xs. And it was one of these great false start stories in genetics in that someone claimed that they'd found this gene, they gave it a name, uh, it was a big splash, a real triumph of genetics that located this gene. And, and the guy who claimed this wrote to a researcher called Jenny Graves in Australia and he'd found it in humans and, and in mice and he said, oh, can you just check that this is the case in the marsupial genome? And so Jenny Graves gave this uh, project to one of her PhD students and the PhD student went off, looked for this gene and he came back and he said, it's on chromosome 5, it's not on the Y chromosome in the kangaroo, I think it was. And Jenny, being a PhD supervisor, said, OK, thanks very much, go and do it again. And he goes off, he does it again, and he comes back with even more robust evidence that this gene is on chromosome 5. And so they basically write to Nature, and there's a big paper saying, no, this is not the sex-determining gene. And so people had to start again. And, you know, it was an honest mistake, and the, and the guy... Who, who did this is a very good geneticist and has been very embarrassed by this, being famous for this story. Uh, but then they found that there was a single gene called um, SRY, the uh, sex-determining region of the Y chromosome. It's now been identified, and it's a single gene on the mammalian Y chromosome that makes a placental mammal or a marsupial mammal develop as a male. In the 1970s, people had looked at the platypus, and this is one of those observations that makes you love the platypus and they went to sort of look for sex chromosomes thinking there'd be an x and y there like all the rest of mammalia and platypuses have five x chromosomes and five y chromosomes it's this ridiculous system they kind of join up into the one big uber x chromosome one big uber y chromosome when they make sex cells so the next thing after sry being cloned is that jenny graves working down in australia took a platypus dna sample went to find sry and it wasn't on any of the Y chromosomes. And again, she kind of assumed that it would turn up somewhere, and it just hasn't turned up. And it's, I know, we now know it's just not there. And so this one sort of birth dates the SRY gene. So this gene that, that solely evolved in mammals basically cropped up between the last common ancestor of all living mammals and the last common ancestor of marsupials and placentals. And, and it's just this ongoing mystery as to how platypuses grow up to be male or female. And actually their sex-determining chromosomes look a bit like bird sex chromosomes, but this is really weird because female birds have two different sex chromosomes and the males have the same two sex chromosomes. And it turns out that sex determination across the whole animal kingdom and in plants as well is incredibly genetically diverse. So yes, it's not just XY and XX. <laughs> I'm Gaia Vince and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Staying with males, I want to take us back to, to where we came in at the beginning of the book and talk for a bit about the delightfully named concept of scrotality. <laughs> you mentioned that mammals have their testicles on the outside and, and gave some sort of various common ideas as to why that might be. Let's talk about how they, I guess, over the eons moved from being internal to becoming external and again you know why that might be right so most male mammals have external testicles in a scrotum and so one of the things about sort of tracing the origin of this thing is to look at exactly which males 
carry their junk on the outside and which ones have got it sensibly tucked up inside. And if you do that, what you see is that platypuses have theirs on the inside. So we know that the scrotum evolved later. And then if you look, all marsupials have a scrotum, but they have a very curious aspect of their scrotums, and theirs are in front of their penises, sort of back to front. And then when you look at placental mammals, you see that many have them, but not all. And if you actually plot it out on the whole uh, contemporary mammalian phylogeny, what you see is that it's sort of popped up in one particular group of mammals, and it's not seen in the sort of African and South American mammals. And so what this tells us is that it evolved twice, which sort of suggests that scrotality, as the term is, possession of a scrotum, um, was clearly important. You know, it evolved twice. And, and you'd think that would sort of give us a better handle on why it happened. And yet there is, there is mystery about it. And so you asked about how it happened, and I think that's a really important issue. So the common theory, the one that we all tend to be familiar with, is this idea that testicles went outside so that sperm production could happen at a cooler temperature. And it's true if you wear too tight pants or if you warm up your testicles, sperm production ceases. There was one company that touted very, very, very tight underpants as a potential male contraceptive device. <laughs> Didn't catch on. Um, but the thing is that any when, when you're looking at the evolution of any trait, you have to sort of account for all the intermediate stages. So to get the sort of the testicles from a position up by the kidneys out through the inguinal canal between your legs and into a scrotum, that, that's a big move. And so if it was to cool them down, you would have to expect that all the intermediate stages would have been making sperm production happen at a cooler temperature. And you can't quite imagine that as they move south through the abdomen. So the sort of counter-argument is that sperm production works best at a slightly lower temperature because it adapted to a lower temperature after the testicles have been excised for another reason. And the the other theory that I found um, appealing was proposed independently by a couple of different people. And a, a German man called Frey and, and a guy called Michael Chance who had to who worked on animal behaviour, did nothing to do with testicles. And he was reading the newspaper after the Oxbridge boat race one day. And he read that when they do urine samples, drug testing in the, in the rowers, there's actually fluid from the prostates of the rowers in their, in their urine, suggesting that the sort of abdominal straining that goes with rowing is capable of sort of rearranging the contents of, of, a, of a male rower's reproductive tract. And so he suddenly thought... What if when mammals had evolved a new way of running, so they gallop in a particular, particularly distinctive way, maybe it was waves of abdominal pressure which were disrupting sperm production, and actually the scrotum was a, was a solution to that problem. And, and he sort of went around and looked at all the animals that don't have a scrotum, and he sort of found some evidence, some correlations, that a few species that have actually retracted their testicles back inside their body have actually gone back on galloping movement and some of the the African orders that never evolved a scrotum in the first place, perhaps they don't move in this particular way. So um, so I was very drawn to that. But then the most recent survey of body temperature has done a really fine job and maybe it's important in cooling them down. So it's yeah, it's sort of a an open debate. The, uh, the mystery of the scrotum lives on. Um. I want to talk about, it's often described as live birth, and again, that's probably a term that's not totally accurate across all of 
all of the, the the mammal species but um if we talk about placental mammals as as you've mentioned a few times it's probably more accurate but you know people can visualize what i mean when i say live birth mammals give birth to live young they don't lay an egg um and what that also means is that's at a at a stage in development where it also means that we have parents basically there has to be a a parent that that performs some sort of taking care of the young mammal for a period of time after its birth and that obviously you know a gazelle gets up and walks about a lot quicker than a than a human baby does but clearly for in both of those ways giving birth to live young and then having to expend energy taking care of a of a baby for a long time both seems to be things that would have evolutionary disadvantages to them what's good about those changes is what i'm right. trying to get in, in a very long-winded way get to yes yeah no it, it was it was funny for me because i i like i said earlier you know the inspiration for this book really was just witnessing this whole process of parenting and it's you know and it is a long process um you know you watch this this baby developed for, for nine months in a womb and then there's this obsession with providing milk for it for a year and you know my oldest is six years old now and it's like we're still doing a lot of parenting for her and so, and so it felt like it, as I dug deeper and deeper into mammalian biology it felt it felt right that this had been this really fundamental change in biology that accompanied the evolution of mammals and to sort of to take a wider view of it you know when when a cod when a female cod breeds, she releases five million eggs into the sea and a male douses them with his sperm. And then they both sort of swim off and they've got five million shots at having offspring. Now, the sea is not full of cod um, and it never was despite our fishing. Um, so, you know, it's a numbers game. And so what you see as you sort of follow this trail towards mammalian evolution, uh, to, towards the evolution of mammals, is a sort of shift to quality over quantity. And so just there's a number of steps which mean that we invest more and more in fewer and fewer offspring. And so even sort of intermediate steps, you could imagine sort of, you sort of see sea turtles, they're not laying millions of eggs, but they're laying dozens of eggs. Um, but again, you know, she, the female turtle goes up on the beach digs a nest, leaves her eggs there, and then that's done. She's made a big egg. It's going to be a fairly advanced animal that hatches. It's not a larva like the cod, but she's still not invested in it after it's been born. And what we see with mammals is, especially placental mammals, is that they're not laying big eggs at all. Quite the contrary. They release a tiny egg. And then development becomes this incredible dynamic relationship between the mother and the offspring. And the offspring is supplied with all its energy through the placenta and grows into quite a sophisticated animal. There's not many of them. And then when the mother gives birth, she sort of maintains this essential role. And you mentioned sort of humans are pretty hopeless as babies. We're actually quite strange in being a large mammal that has hopeless babies. Usually when you look at a, whether it's a cow or a, lion or a elephant larger mammals tend to have actually quite you know 
a cow or an elephant uh, can walk pretty quickly. There's certainly not these sort of months of look, uh, months and years of looking after these infants. Um, but if you look at smaller mammals, which would have been like the original, the earliest mammals, there's a nest that the newborn is quite fetal-like, and then the sort of placenta is essentially just replaced by the by the mammary gland, and we keep investing in the young, and they get a great deal of maternal care. And then, and then there's this really interesting possibility of sort of cultural exchange or learning between generations. So the, the, the teat sort of binds the young to the mother um, and they're getting all their nutrition through the mother and they're also sort of able to sort of learn from their mothers. And, and it's also that there are other advantages to this as well. Um, so the young mammal doesn't have to go out and hunt on its own. It can sort of grow up drinking milk so it's dependent on its mother's hunting skills the mother can go off and hunt she doesn't have to carry the embryos around inside so she's more mobile she can bring back the milk feed the young and and this was probably very important for mammals becoming very specialized hunters so they sort of have milk as an infant diet and then when they're old enough they sort of take on the ways of the species and can be very specialist feeders whatever type of feeding that is <laughs> This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Liam Drew, and we're talking about his book, I Mammal, the story of what makes us mammals. And Liam, I want to move us on to another, again, slightly blurry shared trait amongst mammals in that they don't all necessarily have it, and it's we shouldn't call it warm-bloodedness, basically. We're familiar with the concept of mammals being warm-blooded, but warm-blooded is not really truly accurate, and perhaps you can... You can tell us why. But what I particularly wanted to talk about here is by being warm-blooded means we have to consume a lot of energy. It basically means we have to eat a lot. And some mammals, that means basically almost constantly eating. And I'll ask you to, to describe the uh, the scene with the uh, with the crocodile as a, um, as a comparison. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... So I, I open the, the chapter on warm-bloodedness. I do use that colloquialism. We can call it um, endothermic, homeothermia, if you like. I'll get to that in a second. But no, I thought it, it, emblematic of this is, is this scene where you have these thousands of wildebeest that migrate on these thousands of kilometres migration around Africa, basically chasing the rain because they need, they need grass. They need to feed constantly. So they're circulating Africa... Um, around the Serengeti, and then they have to cross a river. And in this river, there are crocodiles. And the crocodiles sort of drift up to the bank and try to snap 
at the wildebeest and drag them into the water to feed. And when you watch them do this, there's this sort of to and fro, the wildebeest leap back very rapidly from the bank, the crocodile fails, and then occasionally he succeeds. And I, I would love to say I'd been there to watch this. I've, I've sat on my sofa and watched David Attenborough describe it. And and at the end of the scene, after the, the sort of alpha crocodile has pulled this wildebeest into the the river and it's been devoured by a by a dozen or so crocodiles. Attenborough says, and now the crocodile will not eat for another year. And and you, ju- it's just it's such an unbelievable statement that you're sort of immediately sort of, you know, Googling this, you know, has Attenborough made a terrible mistake? Of course he hasn't. Um, and so the crocodiles just basically waited out for a year in their, what we call cold-blooded metabolism, barely doing anything, barely burning any energy, and one meal a year will do them. Whereas the wildebeest need to constantly and it's even worse if you're a shrew uh the smallest of mammals they need to eat every three or four hours otherwise that they will die and so mammalian metabolism is just all about burning energy we just we eat many of the traits that we have are designed to make us digest food quickly rapidly and very proficiently and we just burn off the energy most of the energy we um we absorb is just burnt off as heat um i've recently been discovered the guy who sort of studied this first uh a guy in um 16th century 16th 17th century italy he he would weigh himself and sit on a chair that weighed himself and he would weigh everything he ate and then he would weigh everything he excreted as well and he was sort of struck that if he ate eight pounds of food i think it was he only actually excreted three pounds of of the two uh, usual byproducts, and so he was sort of he, he was amazed that you know five pounds out of every eight, I think it was, is just burnt off insensibly. Why does it go? And it's just the heat that we generate. And so this is a this is sort of a mystery um, as to why a type of animal would want to develop this incredibly expensive lifestyle, uh, and it's really vexed people for a long time. And I'm, I'm still not sure that we we fully get it. Um, so like I said, so warm-bloodedness um, is a colloquial term. People don't like it. And that's because a, an iguana, say, which we would describe as cold-blooded, actually can maintain warm blood throughout the day by shuttling in and out sunshine. And a hibernating hedgehog might have blood that's down at sort of two degrees Celsius, which is obviously cold. Um, so the strict term is endothermic, which means that we generate our own heat by burning the food we eat the masses of food we eat. And, and so, yeah, so there's been multiple theories as to why this might be the case. So the first one was basically uh, this idea that maybe being warm-blooded was just useful if you just got to a high temperature, maintained the high temperature, all the chemical reactions of your body knew where they stood, they could all proceed quite quickly at the higher temperature, and the temperature didn't fluctuate, so, you know, the reaction A knew that... You know, reaction A would happen at the same rate as reaction B. And, you know, they wouldn't... If reaction A was had a different temperature sensitivity to reaction B, that didn't matter because it was always going to be the same temperature. Um, and, and then in the 1970s, people started exploring other ideas. Uh, one of them was looking at history and sort of saying, once the dinosaurs came along and early mammals were sort of struggling to compete with dinosaurs... Um, Warm-bloodedness might have allowed mammals to become nocturnal 
And so they would have operated under the shadow of darkness whilst the dinosaurs roamed around by the day. And so you can't be... Endothermy would have allowed them to exist at night independent of the sun's warming rays. And if I just... I was I'll just interrupt and say... Um, you say you were surprised to discover this. I was also surprised to discover that... I think you say 70% of mammals are actually nocturnal. Yes. It's a huge amount. It is shocking, isn't it? Yeah, no, I was absolutely surprised. Um, no, I, was, I was wandering around Oxford's Natural History Museum and like all the labels on all these mammals said nocturnal, nocturnal, nocturnal. And I almost thought, you know, someone made a mistake. Was that the default label and they forgot to change it? But no, it's true. And um, I guess it makes sense. Basically, for, you know, this vast... The first two-thirds of mammalian history... The dinosaurs were around. It looks like they were mainly nocturnal animals operating under the cover of darkness. And then the dinosaurs get wiped out. And, yeah, you sort of think that maybe they would have suddenly thought, yes, let's, let's go out into the day. And they didn't. And I find it very, very interesting. And the converse is true of birds. So, you know, I think there may still be this partitioning that, you know, you see a lot more birds by day. Um, and the mammals come out at night. Various groups have come out into the day, uh, and primates are really one of the big ones. Um, so most mammals have appalling eyesight, um, and so actually gaining good vision um, is very much a primate thing, which is ironic, really, because we're, we're such visual animals that we think it's such a primary sense, but that's, that's a sort of primate inheritance rather than a overall mammalian inheritance. So, yeah, so was endothermia a trick to get us into the night? Maybe. And then the really big hypothesis um, that came out in the 70s, which has probably been the most influential, is called, it's called the aerobic capacity hypothesis um, put forward by Rubin and Bennett. And they basically said that selection was for peak aerobic performance. So the ability to sort of run like a cheetah or, you know, to, to have that burst of energy to either hunt or to flee. Um, and then they sort of said that the basal met metabolic rate was basically just pulled up by this. So the more we sort of evolved mitochondria and hearts and and um, all the rest of the paraphernalia for running quickly in short bursts, that that just by default pulled up the basal metabolic rate. And but there's there's a lot of people that aren't that happy with it. They basically said it was a they sort of surveyed a bunch of animals and said that there's this correlation between the rate we burn food at rest and the rate at which we can maximally burn as we run on a treadmill. These experiments sort of require getting animals into um, oxygen masks on treadmills and all this other business. But people since have said, actually, there's no reason why they would have had to be perfectly correlated. And there are species that can run very quickly and then rest at very low rates. And that would you could sort of see that that would be your ideal animal, really, would be to be able to sit still and burn no energy, and then when you need to go hunting, ramp it all up. Um, so it remains a controversy. And there was interesting work done in 2000 where two people convergently said, actually, maybe it's parenting that made us increase the basal metabolic rate and become warm-blooded. One of them focused on this idea that once you start incubating your young in a womb within the body, it would actually be good to have a very stable temperature so this scientist, Colleen Farmer, sort of says that if you have temperature fluctuations during development, they can really mess up development. So the stable temperature is good. And then she makes the case that the warmer it is, the faster the young develop. Um, that has very obvious advantages. And she sort of shows that actually some... Well, there was this spectacular find of a lizard, which actually becomes almost endothermic whilst it's 
sitting on its eggs. And that seemed to support that idea. And then another one was sort of saying that sustained energy to provide food for your young, this was a Polish scientist, uh, Pavel Kocha, said that the the high energy demands and the constant activity to be a parent, which, you know, you become familiar with once you're looking after a young one, actually maybe that forced up metabolic rates and just sort of got us into this positive feedback loop of consuming energy and then searching for energy. And and so I, th- and I think there's just a growing appreciation that this was sort of a developing theme in the book, um, was that we kind of have this idea, we, we enjoy evolutionary stories where there's this sort of aha moment. And it's like, okay, this is why this evolved. And, and, and very, very rarely was that the case. There often seemed to be what were called competing theories. And yet, you know, these weren't theories made up by idiots. You know, there was validity in both of them. And I think increasingly we're coming to appreciate that, you know, multiple, multiple factors act on any complex organism. And there's going to be elements of all of these um selection forces that act on the evolution of a complex trait and so i think our explanations are coming perhaps less less simple but probably more valid as we put all these factors together to account for these complex traits evolving Hannah Fry, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Well, that's really brought us to my last question, really. I mean, you've you've sort of answered it in part there, but I was going to ask, in writing this book, how else you changed your mind about you know what you'd previously thought about mammals? You mentioned a few things as we went, and then obviously, as you've as you've just explained, you know the actual. You know, situation for why a lot of the things we think are, um, you know, are much more—it's—it's it's much more complicated than that—is often the answer. But you know, what else do you think you've sort of changed your mind on? Right. Well, yeah. So, despite having studied neurobiology for years, I was this was my first big introduction to sort of evolutionary science. And I think so. When I plotted the book, I sort of said to myself, okay, each each trait gets a chapter. Um, you know, mammary glands, warm blood hair, big brains, you know, we can do these one by one and we'll look at how each of them evolved. And it was almost, you know, to, to caricature my own initial expectations, it was sort of this idea that you'd have initially a reptile-like ancestor and then you'd sort of bolt these traits on. Something like, you know, downloading an app onto your phone, like, you know, stick a pair of memory glands on the front, give them a set of fancy teeth give them a fur coat and you know so just these traits bolted on one by one explain why each of these traits was useful and and it was kind of evident even from the very from the very get-go in looking at the scrotum this and and something I learned after I'd written the book was actually that testicles um 
testicles, testes, is actually the, the Latin root of it is the same as testimony, so they're witness. Um, and so the testicles are sort of the witnesses of the body. So I think that this is my justification for going back to these all the time. But the point was that this, this trait was either a response to mammals becoming warm-blooded or it was a response to them moving in a different way. So well, there, there was no independent story about sperm production and and position of testicles. It, it, this was a trait that evolved in a complex animal. And then when you look at teeth, it's like we, they become a very elaborate. We can we can chew in ways that no other animal can. This is really important for liberating calories from our food. But you can't have fancy teeth for chewing if you don't have a strong jaw and musculature that can move your jaw from side to side. Again, that's very mammalian. Other jaws just open up and down. And so every chapter there was a linkage to something else so the evolution of milk um that looks like it was a response to becoming increasingly warm-blooded so the first lactating animals were laying eggs but these eggs were warmer so they were probably prone to drying out or they might have had more microorganisms growing on them so milk either stopped them drying out or it had antimicrobial properties so again just linkages 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 and so so yeah basically nothing existed in isolation and so really to sort of find to find a definition of a mammal or to explain how a type of animal type of organism evolves you really have to look at this whole collection of how these traits interact and how they all evolve together so they didn't evolve sequentially they evolved side by side they influence each other and I think that was what really surprised me and sort of a sequ- relatedly, and it may not seem that different, but it was also the animals weren't necessarily just evolving in response to the wider world, like getting sharper teeth to to um, to be better hunters. You know, the, these the the body sets the possibilities. So that idea that sort of warm bloodedness led to milk, or the precursor to milk. You know, the the body, the physiology of the body also sets its own parameters, sets its own possibilities. And so there's this great historical contingency through the winding path that took us to mammals. I've been talking to Liam Drew. We've been talking about his book, I'm Mammal, The Story of What Makes Us Mammals, which is out now from Bloomsbury Sigma Books. Liam, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you, Neil. Really enjoyed that. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.